Soma downtown. There I am. Hey, uh, I am Josh. Uh, I am uh, excited to be with you guys today. This is my first time uh, actually here at Soma downtown. Believe it or not, I am one of the pastors of Soma Church, uh, but spend most of my time at the Midtown Congregation. And uh, I was telling some folks today, um, I remember the, the, the last time actually I was in this building was three, what, three years and three months ago. Um, we came in here and we loaded a bunch of stuff in here and we prayed uh, over this space and have continued to pray for you guys since then. Um, but this is the first time I have the opportunity to be with you uh, on a Sunday to worship with you. Uh, actually, I didn't know about the front door, so I was trying to get in this door over here. That's the door we loaded everything in. But thankfully, Kent told me how to get in, and I'm in here today. And uh, looking forward to, to looking into God's Word uh, with you today. Brandon, thank you for the setup. I'm going to try not to blow it and uh, disappoint everybody here. But um, I am looking forward to getting into God's Word with you today. Um, if you've been around here at SOMA, you know that we are in the third week of Advent. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with Advent, maybe you didn't grow up around church, or maybe you didn't grow up around a church that practices Advent, but, but the word Advent literally means coming. It's a reminder, it's a way that we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We look back and we remember his first coming, we remember his, his incarnation and his birth and all the stories surrounding that. But it's actually primarily about longing for Jesus' second coming. It's about looking forward to, to the return of Jesus as Jesus promised when he would return and he would set all things right and he would make all things new. And that's why we practice Advent here at Soma because in a sense, Advent reminds us what time it is. It reminds us what time in the story of God we find ourselves, that we find ourselves Living in the time between the time, between the time when Jesus first came and, and, and brought his message of salvation and died and rose again, but also we are looking forward to his return, to his return when he sets all things right and he makes all things new. And that's what I love about celebrating Advent. Um, I've got to be honest with you, for most of my life, I've been pretty skeptical. I've been pretty cynical of the whole holiday season. I, 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 um, I get kind of like the Scrooge or the kind of the Grinch syndrome, where I, when I look at the holiday season, I think there are two primary things that drive me crazy about Christmas as we practice it in America. The first is consumerism, which probably isn't a surprise to you, that so often everybody's trying to sell you something related to Christmas. But I think the thing that irks me, the thing that annoys me even more than consumerism when it comes to Christmas is sentimentality. And here's what I mean by sentimentality. I mean, by sentimentality, this, this warm, fuzzy, kind of sugary, sweet impulse that makes us, you know, drink things like eggnog or wassail or whatever that is, and to pretend like everything is happy and to pretend like everything is merry and bright and basically to act like Buddy the Elf and to pretend that everything is okay in the world when the fact is we all know everything's not okay in the world. The fact is, we all know that there are still people who, who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. There are still families living on the streets. There are still children dying of AIDS. And when we actually stop and we actually look at the world around us, we realize that everything is not just sentimental and everything is not just happy and bright just because it's December. And what Advent invites us into is Advent invites us to be honest. Advent invites us to be honest about the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness in the world around us, but it also invites us to press in with hope. It reminds us that something better is coming. 
That's what the promise of Advent is all about. It's all about the fact that the better king is coming, that he is coming back and he is going to return and he is going to set all things right and he's going to make all things new. This week at Soma, or this, this month at Soma, we're looking at the, the prophecies from the book of Isaiah. If you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a collection of prophecies and visions that God gave to this guy named Isaiah. And, and he gives him these prophecies and these visions 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And you read these prophecies in the book of Isaiah, and they're all about how the people of God are being crushed. They're being crushed under the evil that is out there in the world, but not just the evil that's out there. They're also being crushed by the evil that's in their own hearts. And God says to his people, he says, I'm sending you a better king. I'm sending you a king who is going to set you free. So I want to look at that today. We're going to, in Isaiah chapter 11. One of those prophecies comes from Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. If you've got a, there should be a Bible around you. If you don't have one, pull it up on your phone. I'll give you a minute to find it. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is what the word of the Lord says. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This text is all about this better king that God is going to send, and he shows us four things that make him a better king. Four things that Jesus the King offers you today. Four things that he will one day make true for the entire world. He's a better king and he gives us a better hope. He gives us a better wisdom. He gives us a better justice. And he gives us a better world. We'll work through these as we work through the text. A better hope, a better wisdom, a better justice, and a better world. First, a better hope. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, who's Jesse? What's the deal with his stump? Uh, what's the deal with his shoot growing out of the stump? If you've read the Hebrew Scriptures, and specifically if you've read the, the book of 1 Samuel, you've heard of this guy named Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. King David is the greatest king in Israel's history. And God promises in 2 Samuel 7 that he's going to build a dynasty for David. He says, one of your descendants, David, one of your sons is going to sit on the throne and he's going to reign as king forever. 
And what you need to know is that if you are uh, uh, an Israelite reading this in 700 BC when Isaiah is giving these prophecies, your entire hope is bound up in that promise. Your entire hope for the world is bound up in this king that God has promised. Because here's what God had done. God said, I'm going to bless David. I'm going to bless his descendants after him. Through this king, I'm going to bless my people. And through my people, I'm going to bless the entire world. That was the promise that they were clinging to with life and death. But now Isaiah comes along, and it's 300 years later. And David has been dead and in the grave for 300 years. And, and if you look at the, the, the guys that came after him, they were either incompetent or downright wicked. And now there's this foreign nation, there's this oppressive foreign army, this empire called Assyria that's knocking on the door, that's about to come in and threatening to come in and destroy Jerusalem and enslave the people of God. That's what's happening. That's the whole point of this stump analogy here. He says the house of Jesse, the dynasty of David, used to be a majestic tree, but now it has been cut down to the ground and burned. And the hopes of the people of God are nothing, nothing more than a burned over stump. And so because of that, the people of God are tempted to go looking for hope in other places. That, that Cliff Notes version, that's what the first 10 chapters of the book of Isaiah are all about. The people of God are tempted to stop trusting in God and to start trusting in military strength, to start trusting in political alliances. They're tempted to make a deal with these other nations around them because they're afraid that God isn't going to take care of them. They've lost their hope in God, so they go looking for something else to put their hope in. And if you and I are honest today, they're not all that different from us, are they? And so let me ask you to think about it. Let me ask you to be honest with yourself today. What are you tempted to put your hope in? What are you tempted to trust in, to make it your God, to make it the thing that you build your life on? Some of us are are a lot like these ancient Israelites. We're putting our hope in political power. That's such a temptation for American Christians. We get the right people in office. If we can get the right justices on the Supreme Court, if we can get access to political power, then we'll have hope. Like, if you don't believe that's a thing, pull up your Facebook feed and look at the vitriol there. Please wait till after the service is over to pull it up. But, like, pull it up, like, look at it. When you get, like, you're going to see it from both sides. It's not just one side. You're going to see it from left and from right. Why are we like that? Why are we so polarized? Why do we vilify each other over politics? Why are some of us looking at Christmas dinner in a week and a half and absolutely terrified that we're going to step on a political landmine as we're sitting around the table with our families? It's because so many Americans, and specifically so many American Christians, have placed their ultimate hope in political power. And I'm not anti-politics. Politics has its place, but it should never take the place of God should never become the center of your hope. So for some of us, we we put our hope in political power. For some of us, it's completely different. For some of us, it's our financial wealth. It's our earning potential. It's our career. For some of us, it's our physical health. For some of us, it's our family or our friends or romantic relationships or our intelligence. And again, there is nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But none of them are strong enough. None of them are solid enough to be your hope. 
Look at the verse that comes right before this. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Here's what he's saying. He is saying all human power will be cut down like a forest that has been raised to the ground. Everything else you place your hope in, everything else you trust in will eventually be cut down to nothing. So Merry Christmas. There's your, there's your nice, warm, fuzzy, feel-good, sentimental message. And it's so interesting. Like, may, maybe you just show up at church at Christmas time, and you hear all these prophecies from, from places like the book of Isaiah, and people talk about all of these promises of hope. But if you actually read the book of Isaiah, it starts with judgment. Like, you see this all throughout the book of Isaiah. Judgment, 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 darkness, destruction, gloom, then hope. It says, that, that, that it begins with recognizing how broken things are. This is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about the book of Isaiah. It doesn't pretend that things are better than they are. We're, we're invited to recognize how dark things are. Everything they have been hoping in has been cut down and burned to the ground. But God says, out of that burned out stump, I will bring life. In the midst of that darkness, I will shine my light. A shoot will come forth from Jesse. And we don't have time to get into this today, but you actually see this pattern all throughout the book of Isaiah. You see it in Isaiah 6. You see it in Isaiah 11. You see it in Isaiah 9. You see it in Isaiah 40. It's this this pattern where God promises to bring hope through judgment. He says, yes, judgment is coming. Things are really dark. But after that, salvation is coming. Grace will have the final word. On the other side of judgment, you will find hope. Can I just tell you, this this is why we've chosen to structure our services the way that we do at SOMA. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but, but there's a rationale, there's a logic to how we structure our services at SOMA. We begin every week with a call to worship. We're called to worship. We recognize God is holy. If Soma Downtown is anything like Soma Midtown, most of us aren't in here for it. But, but every week, we're called to it. Every week, we recognize who God is. Then we move from that to a time of confession. Because when we see God for who he is, we begin to see ourselves for who we are. And we begin to see the world for what the world is. And we begin to confess our sins together. And we lament the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness in the world. Then we move to a time of assurance where we experience the comfort of God, where we experience the comfort of knowing that even though we only deserve his judgment, he's brought us salvation. Even though we are deeply broken and the world is deeply broken, God has not given up on us. God will make us right and God will make the entire world right. There's a logic to it. Assurance comes after confession and here's why. It's because we can't experience salvation We cannot truly experience hope until we recognize something of our need. Let me say that again because that's something that we don't typically like to think about. You will never truly experience salvation. You will never truly experience hope until you recognize that you deserve the judgment of God. You will never experience God's healing until you recognize that you're sick. You will never be dazzled by the light until you experience and you are confronted with the darkness. 
until you learn to be honest with yourself and to be honest with God about the ways that you've turned your back on him and you've said, I want to be God. I want to be the king of my own life. And the fact is, none of us naturally want to feel that, do we? None of us naturally want to admit that. And so we find all these ways to avoid it. We throw ourselves into our work. We throw ourselves into a jam-packed social calendar. We throw ourselves into Netflix. We find all sorts of ways to avoid it. We, we make excuses for it. We minimize it. We explain it away. We shift the blame to somebody else. That is such an enslaving way to live. To always be having to make excuses. To always be trying to justify ourselves. To always be trying to defend ourselves. To always be trying to convince ourselves, I'm not really that bad. To never be able to be honest with ourselves and never be able to be honest with other people and never be able to be honest with God. God invites us to come to him and just be honest. Freedom, hope, Salvation comes when we stop playing religious games, when we stop trusting in ourselves, when we stop trusting in our morality, and we hope only in Jesus. When we say simply like, God, I'm a sinner, and I deserve your judgment, and I need your grace. Because when you stop trying to build your hope on your morality and your righteousness, you are set free to build your hope on Jesus and his righteousness. He offers us a better hope. Some of you identify with these people today. Some of you identify with this feeling of everything has been cut down and burned to the ground. Your hopes and your dreams have been cut down and burned to the ground. Your hope of finding a spouse has been cut down and burned to the ground. Your marriage has been cut down and burned to the ground. Your career has been cut down and burned to the ground. And if that's where you are today, here's what I want you to hear from the word of God. That's where God brings redemption. That's where God brings hope. God doesn't leave us to ourselves. God brings life out of death. God brings light out of darkness. And sometimes he allows that to happen. Sometimes he allows it to all be cut down and burned to the ground because we're trusting these things that can't ultimately satisfy us and that can't ultimately support us and he wants to give us something better to build our lives on he wants to give us himself he wants to give us a better hope jesus gives us a better hope second thing not just a better hope he gives us a better wisdom a better wisdom verse two and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, you, you see over and over again the Spirit of the Lord falling on people. And, and, and the Spirit of the Lord falls on people, and then he empowers them to lead. So you go to the book of Exodus, you see it with Moses. You go to the book of Joshua, you see it with Joshua. You go to the book of Judges, you see it with all these different leaders in the book of Judges. You go to the book of 1 Samuel, and you see it with King David. 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed with the Spirit of God. He is anointed as the King of Israel, and the Spirit of God comes upon him. And the very next thing you know, 1 Samuel 17, David is out on the field of battle chopping off the head of Goliath. He's the anointed one. The word Messiah literally means the anointed one. He is the one who's been anointed with the Spirit of God. But when Isaiah comes along, David's been dead in the grave for 300 years. Isaiah says there's a better David coming. 
There's a better king coming. There's a better Messiah coming. There's a better anointed one coming. And the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. Look what the Spirit gives him, verse 2. The Spirit gives him wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He brings a better wisdom. Because as the king, he needs wisdom. He needs wisdom to be able to rule well. He needs wisdom to be able to lead the people toward flourishing. Because nobody wants to follow an idiot. I don't want to follow a king who doesn't know what he's doing. But here's the thing you need to know. The wisdom of Jesus often doesn't look like wisdom to us. Jesus takes the wisdom of the world and he turns it upside down. He brings a better wisdom. Just do a thought experiment with me. Think about this with me. Let's say you want to start a global movement. And so it might be something in business. It might be something, uh, some initiative that you want to start. So let's imagine you want to start a global movement. You want to change the world. How do you do it? You make sure you got all the right resources. You make sure you've got all the right funding. You make sure you're plugged into the right networks and that you get all the influential people on board. And above all, you try really hard not to get yourself killed. But how does Jesus do it? He's born into poverty. He lives the first 30 years of his life in obscurity in some redneck town out in the middle of nowhere. He never goes to college. He never writes a book. He never goes to the center of power, never joins even LinkedIn. He never does anything to try to build his networks. He gathers a few nobodies around him, and he dies as a criminal after three years of ministry. And yet you and I and two and a half billion other people around the world are gathering together today to celebrate his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. See, God's way of doing things, the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom of God, turns the wisdom of the world upside down. Have you ever asked, like, you're reading the Christmas story, and you see these guys called the wise men? And these guys are these powerful rulers, and these guys are traveling across the desert, and they go across the desert to bow down to some child who can't talk or read or write. Why is that? It's because the wisdom of God is infinitely greater than the wisdom of human beings. It's because the wisdom of the world must bow down before the wisdom of God. Everything about the wisdom of Jesus turns the wisdom of the world upside down. But that upside down wisdom is the only thing that brings hope to the world. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's what we preach, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It doesn't look like like strength. It doesn't look like wisdom. It looks like weakness. It looks like foolishness. This this man suffocating in his own blood on a Roman cross. And yet he says that is the hope of the world. Now, if you're a Christian, if you find yourself in church today, you might have that as part of your mental framework. You might believe that as a doctrinal statement. But let me ask you, do you really believe that? Do you believe that in your bones? Do you believe that when it really comes down to living that? Do I believe that? Do I really believe that Jesus' way of doing things is wiser than my way of doing things? Do I trust his wisdom in my marriage? 
When the world tells me that I shouldn't stay with someone who doesn't make me happy, do I trust his wisdom? Do I trust the covenant that he's brought me into? And do I trust that he is doing something in the midst of those difficult times? Do I trust his wisdom with my money? When the world tells me to hoard it all, to spend it all on myself, do I trust the wisdom of Jesus who says it is more blessed to give than to receive? Do I trust his wisdom with my sexuality? When the world tells me to follow my instincts and sleep with whoever makes me feel good, do I trust that Jesus has created me as a sexual being and that he knows the way to flourishing? Do I trust his wisdom when it comes to forgiveness? When the world tells me that I should condemn people, when the world tells me that I should hold a grudge and hold other people's sins against them, do I follow the wisdom of Jesus who offers full and complete forgiveness? Jesus turns it upside down. And what's so good here in verse 2, if you notice, he doesn't just give the spirit of counsel, he also gives the spirit of might. He gives the spirit of power. Because it can be really difficult to follow the way of Jesus. Everything he tells us goes against the grain of what we naturally think and feel and often what we naturally desire. But what the Bible tells us in the New Testament is that Jesus, in the book of Acts, that he rose to the right hand of the Father and he poured out his spirit on his followers so that we can walk in his ways, so that we can walk in his wisdom. He doesn't just tell us what to do. By his spirit, he gives us the power to walk in his wisdom. He gives us a better hope. He gives us a better wisdom. Third thing, he gives us a better justice. Better justice, verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. All throughout the Bible, you hear this cry for justice. All throughout the Bible, all throughout human history, all over the world, you hear this cry for God to defend the poor and the oppressed and to set things right. And here's why you hear that at every epoch of history and every culture in the world is because human justice is always in some sense perverted. Human justice tends to favor the powerful and the privileged and the rich. It is something that happens in every society. This is why I'm so thankful for many of you who are working for justice in our city. This is why I loved hearing Brandon share both services today because that's the heart of the Messiah. The heart of the Spirit of God is, is justice for the poor, justice for the oppressed. Justice for those who are powerless in our society. That's what God calls us to. That's what the Spirit of God creates in us. And we continue to work for justice. And we continue to work for human flourishing. And yet at the same time, we also recognize that we are not the Messiah. We also recognize that we are not the Savior of the world. And so it tempers our zeal with realism. If you don't remember that, if you don't remember that you are not the Savior, that you are not the Messiah, you will eventually burn out. You'll eventually give up when things get tough. And so we work for justice, but we also recognize that we're longing for the day when Christ returns to implement perfect justice. Verse 3, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
What he's saying there is he's saying he will not judge based on appearances. He will not let prejudice get in the way of justice. Now, we're not going to do this today, but if we took a survey in here and we said, okay, raise your hand if you're prejudiced, probably nobody in here is going to raise their hands. But we are so often blind to our own prejudice. Even well-intentioned people, even people who hate prejudice, often fall into it. Some of you guys who know me know that I'm a, I'm a little bit of a Malcolm Gladwell fanboy. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has an entire book where he traces this out. It's called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. And one of the things Gladwell traces throughout this book is that even people who hate prejudice, even people who fight against prejudice, often are, are not immune to it. Often we still fall into it. Often you still judge by what your eyes see. And what he says here, what Isaiah says, is he says the coming king will not be like that. The coming king will judge with perfect justice and righteousness. The coming king will establish justice for the poor and the oppressed because the coming king knows what it's like to be poor and oppressed. He doesn't just execute justice for the poor. He identifies with the poor. 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. He doesn't just defend the oppressed. He identified with the oppressed. He experienced oppression. He experienced injustice and torture and crucifixion. And he did it for us. Look back at verse 4 again, the very last phrase in verse 4. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now I read that initially, initially and I'm like, yeah, do it, God. Like, get rid of all of them. And then I actually start paying attention to myself and I realize, oh, he might be talking about me. He might be talking about my wickedness. He might be talking about the way that I try to act like I'm the God of the universe, the ways that I use other people rather than serving other people. So the fact is, this infects all of us, and we need someone to die in our place. That's why Jesus came. He dies in our place, and he rises again so that we don't have to fall under the judgment of God. The judgment that should have fallen on me fell on him. That's why I've actually come to love Christmas. Because Christmas is not about sentimentality. Christmas is about the awful, unvarnished reality of a horrifically broken world. And it is about the awful, unvarnished reality of my horrifically broken heart. And it is about the God who loves us so much that he steps into that and he experiences it with us. And he died and rose again to set us free. He promises, not only have I experienced it, but one day I will overcome it. I will set all things right, and I will make all things new. So how do I know that? How do I know that Jesus is going to make it right? How do I know that Jesus is going to overcome sin and death? It's because he's already done it. Because he has, in a sense, already overcome. Because when Jesus was crushed under injustice and oppression and evil of the world, he didn't stay in the grave. But three days later, he walked out of the grave and he trampled sin and death and hell underfoot. And he rose to the right hand of the Father and he said, I am coming again. I'm going to set all things right and I'm going to make all things new. And suffering and sin and injustice and poverty and oppression and racism and death will not have the final word. Jesus will have the final word. It tells us something better is coming. Coming not just for us, but for the whole world. That's the final thing we see. He brings a better world. 
And I almost hate to say it that way because it sounds so trite. Like we talk about this all the time. I just want to make the world a better place. But Jesus is doing more than that. Jesus isn't just trying to make the world better. Jesus is going to make the world new. Jesus is going to remake the entire fabric of creation. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What in the world does that mean? What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to bring peace to the entire world. I'm going to bring peace between nations. Because remember, they're worried about this foreign army that's threatening to to invade them and destroy them. He says, I'm going to bring peace. No more war. No more violence. No more oppression. And that peace will extend so far that I will even put an end to violence in the natural world. I will remake the fabric of creation. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. As a parent, I'm freaking out reading that right now. My son Owen has 27 stuffed animals, give or take, that he sleeps with like every night. And he has to have all of them piled on top of them if he's going to get to sleep. He's got the whole zoo in his bed with him. That's kind of the idea here except it's with live animals. He says babies will be able to keep snakes in their cribs, which sounds absolutely insane. But if you go back to the beginning, the very beginning of the Bible, and you read the book of Genesis, you realize there's something else going on here. There's actually a deeper symbolism going on here. Genesis chapter 3, God says, I'm going I'm to curse the creation because, because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And he says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put hostility between your descendants and the descendants of Eve. And and basically what he's saying is that because of the intrusion of sin, the entire universe is out of whack. The world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And we all know that. We've all experienced that. We get sick. We get old. We get cancer. We die. We live under the curse of sin and death. But he says it's not always going to be that way. He says a day is coming when I will reverse the curse, when I will reverse sin and death, and you won't need to be afraid of anything anymore. No more violence. No more oppression. No more war. No more disease. No more death. No more pain. No more destruction. Look what he says, verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Jerusalem is built on a mountain. The temple, the house of God was was on this holy mountain. And Isaiah says a day is coming. It's going to be about 100 years after this prophecy. A day is coming when the Babylonian army is going to invade Jerusalem and is going to tear down the temple and is going to burn the city to the ground. But God says after that, after that, a day is coming when there will be no more violence and no more war and no more oppression and I will build a better city and I will build a better temple and my glory will not be contained in one place but the whole world will be my temple. I'm going to fill the earth with my glory. Look at verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It says the entire world, 
all of creation will be flooded, will be saturated with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Like, I know we don't get to the sea a whole lot here in Indiana, but if you've been there, there is water everywhere. And that's the whole point. The knowledge of the Lord, the entire world, flooded with the glory of God. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Even, he says, these nations that are oppressing God's people. Even these nations that are cut off from God's promises. Even you and me, most of us in this room, not ethnically Jewish, sitting here worshiping a Jewish Messiah. He says they will come to the root of Jesse. They will inquire of him and they will follow him and they will bow down to him and they will worship him. They will know the Lord and they will find life in him. Can I tell you, like, that's why we're taking up this Advent offering. That's why we're digging deep in our pockets for the cause of global missions. That's why some of you in this room maybe need to start asking the question of whether God is calling you to go somewhere and to take the gospel to people who don't have access to it. This is why Jesus came. That's the point of of Christmas, so that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is where he is moving all of human history. That's why we are sitting here today. That's why we're sent out from here today. Because the better justice and the better wisdom and the better hope and the better world that Jesus is bringing is not just for one group of people. It is not for one ethnic group. It is not for one socioeconomic group. It is not for people living in one part of the world. It is, it is for people in our city, but it is not just for people in our city. And it is not just for people in our country. God is going to make the entire world new, and the good news of this hope is going to go to every corner of the globe. And we don't hoard that hope for ourselves, but we announce it to people everywhere, and we invite them into it. God's passion is to bless people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Because God wants to bless and God deserves to be worshipped by people everywhere. God deserves, Jesus deserves to be worshipped by people in Indianapolis and in India. On the Near East side and in the Far East and in the Middle East. He is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of their worship. He has set us free, and he wants to set them free. He died so that we could know his love, and he died so that they could know his love. He came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again so that every city and every town and every village and every corner of the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what he has called us to. That's how he has called us to himself. That's what he sends us out of here to do so that People everywhere would know the love and the grace of God and would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So how can he do that? How can Jesus do that? How how can some guy who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago bring me to God? And how can he bring people from all over the world to God? And how can he fill the world with the presence of God? And how can he bring justice in a world that's so full of injustice? He can only do that because of who he is. Because this is no mere human king. Because this is the king of heaven and earth. I want you to look closely. Look back, all the way back at verse 10. Who's he talking about? He says, a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall bear fruit. So he calls him the shoot, or he calls him the branch of Jesse. Now, look all the way down in verse 10. What does he call him? He calls him the root of Jesse. 
He's the shoot of Jesse, and he's the root of Jesse. He's a descendant of Jesse, and he's the one who gives Jesse life. He comes after Jesse, and he's before Jesse. You should be really confused right now. This is an extremely confusing family tree. And I know nothing about botany or agriculture or anything else, but I do know that you can't be the root and the branch at the same time. So what's going on here? It's only possible because of who Jesus is. It is only possible because he is both human and divine, because he is, in fact, Emmanuel, because he is, in fact, God with us. He's the descendant of Jesse who comes from the line of Jesse, but he's also the creator of Jesse. He's the source of Jesse. He's the creator who has become human. He's the God who's become man. And so let's bring that down for a minute. Let's talk about what that means. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for every other person on this planet? Here's what it means. It means that Jesus is not just another religious teacher who's come to tell you how to find God. Jesus is the God who has come to find you. He is the God who has come to find you. He is the God who refuses to give up on you. He is the God who is coming after us, who loves us, who steps into our world, who experiences our brokenness, who takes the curse and the judgment that we deserve and sets us free from it. He's the one who was cut down. He's the one who died under the judgment of God, was cut down to the ground, was buried and left for dead in the ground, but who shot up out of the dead earth and now gives life to you and to me and to the entire world. He's a better king who gives us a better hope and a better wisdom and a better justice and a better world, who died, rose again, is coming again to set all things right and to make all things new. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate him and we long for the day when he returns. I said at the beginning, Advent tells us what time it is. Advent reminds us what time it is. One of the primary ways we remind ourselves of that every week is through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us what time it is. And again, not just like time like we're going to get out of here in a few minutes, but it reminds us where we are in the story of God. It reminds us that we are waiting for Christ to return. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Then he takes wine and he pours it out and he gives it to him and he says, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, I want you to eat this bread and I want you to drink this cup as a way of reminding yourself of what I've done for you, but also as a way of looking forward to the fact that I'm coming again. That one day I'm coming back and we're going to eat and we're going to drink together again. And he says, on that day, Jesus says, many will come from east and west and north and south, from every corner of the globe, from every tribe and tongue and nation. We will all come to the table and we will feast with the king who died and rose again to bring us to himself. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So if that's what you're hoping in today, let's take that and let's eat in anticipation. Let's eat looking forward to that day when Christ returns and we will gather with brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation and we'll eat in the presence of Jesus in a world made new. The way that we do that, I'm told here at, at Soma downtown, is stations at the, at, at the, in the left right here, stations in the back left back there, and then gluten-free uh, up here in the front. We'll simply come up 
uh, as God leads you, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, take it, and return to your seat. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're just kind of checking this thing out. And, and we'd invite you to, to remain in your seat while others come to take the bread and the cup. Believe me, that is not because we think we are in any way, shape, or form superior to you. But it's simply because if, if you don't trust in Jesus, then this is just a perfunctory religious ritual. And so we'd invite you to, to just stay in your seat and to remind yourself and to ask yourself, what is it that's keeping me from trusting in Jesus? For some of us, we got intellectual questions that we need to explore. For some of us, we got deep hurt and deep wounds from the past that we need to pay attention to. So whatever it is, pay attention to what's going on inside of you uh, as you consider the claims of Jesus. And if you want to explore that further, I would love to speak with you. Pastor Kent's up here. Uh, we'd love to uh, speak with you and to explore that with you. So let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, 